You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, our host Sam Neat, a full-time British basketball advocate. Boy, the English winter has hit last couple of days. It has really started getting cold. And unfortunately, uh, as, as always seems to be the case, the heating in my building is out. So uh, it is very nippy in the studio. Um, but the guest has just left. I uh, just finished recording an hour and 20 minutes with Jeff Skinner. Now, Jeff is a um, a very valuable piece in the British basketball puzzle. Um, he's just finished writing a master's dissertation around the history of basketball funding in England. Uh, he first reached out to me about a year ago when he first started on that journey, and over the last 12 months has spent an inordinate amount of time uh, speaking to various different figures uh, within British basketball and doing his research to put together what has ended up being a 94-page document um, about basketball in this country. Uh, you know, I've always said that there is not enough research done around the game in this country and so as a result, anyone that does want to do anything has to start from scratch. Um, so the more people that can do work like this and then put it out there so that the next person that comes along can build upon it, help. I think it goes a long way in helping uh, grow the game and push the game forward uh, so we don't make the, you know, the same mistakes that we've made in the past. Before we do get into this week's show, I um, do have to do a customary sponsorship message. As always, this show is sponsored by ourselves. Uh, we have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hoopsfix and what that is it's a platform to allow creators like ourselves get paid by our audience so if you like our work if you value our work and you want to support us every single month uh, you can go there and you can sign up and give us as much or as little as you want to help us continue doing what we're doing and hopefully help continue to grow and push the game forward in this country Anyway, uh, that's enough for me. As always, uh, I would love to hear what you think. I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, you can drop me an email on sam at hoopsfix.com. You can leave a comment on the YouTube video. You can leave a comment on the website. You can reach out to us on all social media platforms at hoopsfix. Um, and also, if you're listening on iTunes, please do please do take five seconds to give us a rating and review. It will help us uh, continue to grow and spread far and wide in amongst the iTunes audience. So that would be much appreciated. Anyway, that is enough for me. Uh, here is this week's show with me and Jeff Skinner. Jeff, welcome to the show. Sam, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, yeah, I think it it, I, it makes sense for me to start with giving a bit of context to people about kind of why you're here um, and the background. And, and so, you know, a year or so ago now, uh, you reached out to me and said you were working on a dissertation, a master's dissertation, um, which you finished last month, September. Yeah, end of September. Um, and I've had a good chance to read through it a couple of times. And, and like I said to you uh, via email, it's definitely one of the best pieces of research that I've read around British basketball. Um, so I commend you on that and thank you for that because I think that the sport needs so much more of it. And so today I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of go into that in detail um, and explore the things that you explored and the things that you've learned uh, over the course of your research over the last sort of year or so. Um, before we do go into that, I think it kind of uh, makes sense to start with your background as well. Um, you know, I've never met you in person. It's the first time we've met. Uh, and so it'd be interesting to kind of get a bit of context of where you're coming from, your background in the game, um, and how you first got involved with basketball, if you would. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, um, so I'm in my early 60s. I went to school in Berkshire in the 1960s. Uh, I went to a small school, only 400 people. Um, we happened to have a teacher who was very keen on basketball. Um, there weren't many around that were like that. So, you know, as a, as a school team, we were good. By the time I was 15, 16, uh, our school team couldn't get any kind of decent competition locally. We aspired to play in English schools competitions. Um, and, and in order to, it, to find some decent competition to play, uh, the teacher suggested that we should join an adult league. 
So uh, we formed a, a club, 16, 17 year olds, played in the, uh, the local league in, in Berkshire, which is called the Wessex League. Um, and, and I'm still part of that club. You know, that, that uh, club's called the Aztecs Basketball Club. It's been going since 1972. Um, and, and there are three of us that on and off have remained part of it ever since. We now have uh, three men's teams, two ladies' teams play, play in the local league. So that, that, that got me into the sport. Uh, obviously, doing well keeps you interested in sport. Went away to university, came back. Um, and as and this was by now the club is thriving it's the 1980s basketball is on television on channel four so it's a really exciting time you know uh, the uh, at that time the the club that would become um the thames valley tigers were actually the bracknell pirates their early their early days at, at bracknell sports center uh being televised our our club managed to get to have the slot before their national league games on occasions, so it was all very exciting. We get you know see national league games for for for, for free um, and get a free court, which obviously really helped. Um, so that that was very exciting. Uh, and as the eighties went on, I started to get interested in basketball administration. I became treasurer for the local league and then did a lot of jobs. Ended up as the chairman of the Wessex League, and then ultimately in the early nineties. I stood and became the regional representatives. Now, this was a time when the English Basketball Association was going through some significant change. It was reorganising. It appointed these volunteer regional representatives for like eight of them around the country. And, and it's a model they still have. These people are completely run off their feet, apparently. Um, and you know, and I, I did that. I only did that for a year. Um, and I guess, and I wanted to say all of this because it's it's relevant to the journey of the dissertation. Because what I felt at that time was there was this, this great sense of excitement, enthusiasm, and hope for English basketball. Um, you know, people, the Basketball England was then called the English Basketball Association. It talked about basketball is the sport of the nineties. Um, you know, there was a sense it's it's really thriving, it's really growing. Money is coming into it. I, I did this regional representative job um, only for a year. Uh, the reasons I stopped were it, you know, it was very time-consuming. Um, my career was developing. The meetings were at weekends. Um, my personal life was uh, just just on the point of remarrying. So you know, there were a, a number of things that were going on that just made it difficult to keep doing that. And then I kind of. Had to leave that role and and generally wind down a lot of my uh, administrative stuff and just focus back on the club, playing, coaching, doing admin stuff in the club, um, and that you know and as a result from kind of the mid nineties to when I retired from paid employment in two thousand and ten, my focus was just on the local club. I, I kind of lost a lot of contact with what was going on at a national level what was help, happening in English basketball. Um, so when the opportunity to do the dissertation came up, uh, and this dissertation is with the University of Buckingham, they do a programme in, in the history of sport, and I thought, you know, this is an opportunity to, to do some research in basketball. I've always been interested in it. I'd like to find out more. Um, and I was sure of one thing, nobody else on this programme, there's about 10 people doing it, nobody else on the programme would be researching basketball. 
And I was right. And, and we had a number of academics come and talk to us. And it was, they were you know, great people. People like Tony Collins at the University uh, uh, de Montfort in Leicester. You know, people that have written brilliant stuff about sport. And you talk to them, oh, basketball. You know, that's interesting. Nobody's ever written about it. It was, it was amazing. Um, so, you know, I, I was interested to just find out, well, what's happened? Why is it never really taken off? Where's it got to? Um, and, and over the year of doing the research, I, I mean, I learned a huge amount. I, I was amazed at how little, how vague my knowledge was and how, how much I learned as, as the year went on. But you know that then takes me into the into the dissertation, and I, I could launch now into the journey of the dissertation. Well, let's, um, it, you know when you were assessing sort of your options with the with the dissertation, I know that the first title that you emailed me is not the, the end title that you've kind of ended up with. So originally, um, you know, what were the options that you were looking at uh, within the history of basketball in this country? Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting question because, frankly, uh, the first three months, I mean. On the one hand, I'm interested to just learn about basketball. You know, I'm, I'm interested to, to get under the skin of it. The reason for the doing the dissertation was to learn about basketball. It wasn't to get a master's qualification. I don't need that. From an ego point of view, it's a nice thing, <laughs> assuming I pass, that, that I will get. Uh, but, but I really wanted to learn about basketball. And I, I didn't really know. I, I guess my big question was, I'm entering into this with a sense of basketball had the potential to be huge in this country, it seems not to have achieved that. Why didn't it? What went wrong? Um, and I think one of the things I learned quite early on as I got into it, you know, I st as I started to do online research, I started to find out that um, it, it, Sport England have been running these active people surveys for the last decade, and the number of people playing basketball is massive. I mean, it's way more than I realised. You know, when you realise, when, when I stumbled across the fact there's over a quarter of a million people playing basketball at least every month, and that's on a par with the second highest ranking team sports in the country. You know, soccer, way out ahead. But basketball's being played by almost as many people um, as are playing rugby and cricket. And that was, that was a real light bulb moment for me. It's like, Wow, I had no idea, um, and then I, you know that so that that threw up something quite quite new. Suddenly, basketball is being played by a lot of people, and yet nobody ever talks about it. it it's apparently silent, uh, and and I think, I mean, I had to do a lot of exploration and research to work out what it what were the questions that I really wanted to answer you know eventually I got I got I was very lucky early on that I got connected with the University of Worcester and the archive that they'd set up and and Professor Jeff Coey there was phenomenally helpful you know I mean the first time I went to see him you know I mumbled on about my ideas and two minutes later he said okay well here's a structure for your, your dissertation and it was you know it was very different to what I ended up but it would have been an idea mm -hmm. um, and, and the more the more I got into it the more I became very aware that the critical issues were fundamentally about money and basketball hasn't got any and you know that that was its big issue and alongside that what I became aware of as I looked more broadly at what had happened in British sport in this time, or in, as it turns out, increasingly in world sport, was 
that period, and, and I ended up deciding the time to start the dissertation is 1972, because that's when the EBBA first set up a professional, sustained professional league. Now, that worked very well for me personally, because it was the same year that we set up our club. So, you know, I'd been thinking in those sorts of terms, and it was a nice fit. But, but the start of the professional league was a a good start point for looking at the journey and and as as basketball progressed through the 1970s as you look more widely at sport it's also a period when the commercialization of sport is happening at great pace you start to get significantly more sponsorship and advertising coming into into sport driven to a large extent by the fact that you start to get an awful lot more sport on television um, so you start to get um, you get more channels obviously you've got BBC 2 arrives in the mid 60s by the time you get to 1980 you've got channel 4 then you get channel 5 blah blah mm-hmm. blah so you start to get uh, more exposure of sport you get an increasingly shift an increasing shift within sport to sports organisations starting to recognise that there's a lot of money out there that companies can start to see sports as, as a vehicle. And, and that, that started me realizing that the, the really interesting stuff around, for me, around what has enabled basketball to grow or restricted it from growing is an awful lot to do with about, about its ability to, or its failure to attract finance, either commercially or publicly, because you also start to you get the um, the emergence of the Sports Council in the 1970s, 60s, early 1971. The Sports Council is founded as a as a body that has the power to start really investing a lot of money, and it starts to build an awful lot of sports centres. Um, That's what ends up turning into Sporting England. Ultimately. Yes, yes, it serves the same function. Yeah, so the Sports Council, the Sports Council it eventually split. So there was a there was something known as the Sports Council. Well, there are actually sports councils in Scotland and Wales and Ireland at that time. It went through a big change in I think the late eighties or early nineties, perhaps a little bit earlier than that. But, but but it had it got to this point where it had this split. So you then went the Sports Council became effectively Sport England, focusing on grassroots sports and mass participation. UK sport focusing on elite sport. So you get this split and you start getting a lot more money going into or a lot more focus on elite sport. And, and the pressures, it, for me, it was very interesting to look at the background of this. The pressures were in the 1950s and 60s, a recognition that um, public investment, you have public investment in health in the 1940s, start of the NHS. Then you have more interest in, OK, if we can invest publicly in encouraging people to do more sport, That'll get them to have worthwhile leisure time, and it's good for health. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get you get that in, uh, that investment, um, and and as you get into that, you start to find there's a huge lack of facilities. So you get this massive building program in the 70s and 80s, building sports centres, fantastic for a sport like basketball. You know, you get lots of indoor courts. Of course, th- th- these indoor gymnasiums are they've got lines all over the floors for loads of sports. But, you know, one of them is basketball. So at a time when the National League is starting to develop, professional basketball is just starting to take off, you've also got a growth of facilities. So you have a number of things coming together that are facilitating the growth of basketball. 
And I think behind all of this, you fundamentally have a sport that is a lot of fun to play. I mean, you know, I end, I end up in my conclusions believing that basketball has the potential as a participation sport to be much bigger. And a lot of that is based on the fact it's an easy sport to play. It's easier if you're a country with a good climate and there's lots of outdoor courts, for sure, uh, you know, because courts are expensive. But, but, you know, I mean, I know as a kid, I've always been a sports nut. I play football, I played cricket, I played rugby, I played basketball. One of the things that's great about basketball is you can do so much on your own. You know, ball and a hoop, you can have fantastic fun. That's much harder with many other sports. Mm. Um, so, so the the your question was about the change in the title, yeah. and the change in the title ended up being much more focused on the finance of basketball. And so, you know, to give people the context, the title ended up being. Uh, let me just read this to make sure I get it right. Um, the development of basketball in England, an analysis of the importance of funding since the start of the National Basketball League in 1972. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, and then you broke that down into into three chapters, um, which was uh, the first one was talking about the sort of the sort of the public funding of sport as a whole in this country and the history of it. Um, commercial finance and media exposure was the second part, and then the third part was organisation and governance. Yeah. Um, and I mean, each section was fascinating for me. It almost becomes a documented history of the game as opposed to because the finance part is such a huge part of it. Um, so let's kind of start with the the first chapter. Um, so the the importance of, of the public funding side of things. Uh, when you look at that from the beginning through to now, I mean, for me, the biggest thing reading it was there seems to be a lot of recurring themes. Like yeah. a lot of the stuff that you're saying were the issues back then are still issues now. Yes. Um, you know, when you when you kind of, yeah, when you did the research, kind of what were your main findings in that area? Well, the, the two themes, I think, that go through it constantly are uh, there aren't enough basketball courts and the ones that are are, are way too expensive. And one of, there, are, there are lots of things that I could explore further and didn't have the chance or opportunity to do. One of them is comparing the accessibility and cost of courts in this country with other basketball-playing countries in Western Europe generally the EU and I, I you know I just picked up a lot of anecdotal stuff that was like you know local coach I talked to comes from Spain the court's basically free it's paid for the by, by the municipality or the local council I just walk down and pick up the key so it's way easier for kids to get into playing basketball because it's much much cheaper so you know that that was a that's a that's an important theme courts are uh, not available there aren't enough of them and they're way too expensive um and the other theme that comes through is that, by and large, there's been far less public investment in basketball than there has been in a lot of other much more traditional sports. Cricket, football, rugby, obviously. Um, but, you know, for, for basketball, competitive purposes, netball. You know, the, the contrast between basketball and netball is, is a fascinating one. So, so there's, a, 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 there's a theme throughout of basketball not getting its fair share of money. Now, it, alongside that, you get the stuff that's changed with respect to public funding over that period of time. And I think there are two things that have changed significantly. One is it's become much more rigorous and sophisticated. So when you go back to the Sports Council in the 1970s, it was much more people were known, people were trusted, we've got an idea, okay, we'll go off and do that. 
basketball had was well connected at that time I feel um, so they were trusted and they went off and did things what what you what you get is when you go from probably 1979 uh, the conservative government from that period economic problems money's much tighter and there's a fundamental shift into public financing being value for money return on investment rather than driven by personal relationships and yeah trust. well also and and social and community needs i mean i don't want to get into into the realms of politics here yeah. but 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 there is a there was a fundamental political shift yeah. that that takes uh, the attitude into what gets financed about where can we get apparent money rather than mass in participation in, in simple terms i think um so the whole the whole world of public financing gets much more rigorous everything gets measured more you get much more uh Sport England's going to give you money provided you meet objectives and you get your return. And I think in principle that's a really good thing. In practice it can drive wrong behaviours. Um, but that what goes with that rigour, uh, eventually you then start to... The rigour's being managed on, on very limited data because until 2006 centrally there was no real good measurement of how many people are playing what sports mm. so the, the simple thing was okay how many people are playing basketball the english basketball register uh, association registers the number of people playing it is about let's you know in the early let's say 2000 it's about 20,000 people okay so that's the number of people that are playing basketball so then you do start doing these surveys how many people are playing basketball it's 250,000 <laughs> yeah. suddenly you start to to identify uh, a measure that be that becomes uh, much more important. So, so I think what's going on through a lot of that period is there's an awful lot more people playing basketball than people in power and influence who make the decisions about the money realised. Yeah. I don't think they were inherently biased against basketball. They just didn't know anything about it. You know, it's not a, a traditional school. It's not played uh, by, by a lot of people in positions of power and influence it's it's a you know it's a street sport it grows one of the things that helps it grow actually in, in fairness to public financing is an initiative called the outdoor basketball initiative between 1995 2005 10,000 basketball goals put up around the country huge numbers of people play it's informal so you, you get a lot more people playing the sport people of power and influence don't realize that um, so basketball is not getting its fair share the measurement starts to, I think the measurement starts to make it much more visible in the public funding arena. Um, and it, st it starts to help the case. Um, but there is still a massive problem with the form of measurement that even is being, because active people survey, I, 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 at one point I remember doing research into it, and it's based on like, they only call home numbers. Is how they do the survey. Yeah. So they don't call mobiles for a start. Yeah. They only call home numbers. There's like all these other weird things where ultimately, you know, it's the best they've got at the moment. Yeah. But it's not even close to being really a true reflection of what's really going on. Yeah. Um, and that seems that, that also, you know, basketball definitely has struggled. Uh, and basketball England, I think, have admitted to this and said this many times where it's so hard to measure that participation is because there is so much informal play that happens. You know, you take rugby, it's like, me and you're not just going to go to the park and start playing rugby together. Yeah. It just doesn't really happen in the same way. Yeah. Um, 
And I think one of the things they're trying to do is, is get a better gauge of their numbers and, and how people are actually playing. I don't know what the best the best answer is. That it would be interesting to know whether you um, whether you saw any or had any thoughts around better ways of measuring the number of participants that that uh, take part in basketball. Well, I, I think you're raising an interesting question because I, I look at it. I was looking at it very much as it's it. Active people survey was way better than anything else went that went before, which for sure it was. Yeah, and and I think you're right to identify its limitations. the The sample sizes were also quite small. Yeah, yeah, and um, that. you know, so so it, it, I think it's limited. I, I, in my view, I think it. I think as a means, and I think I, I said this in the dissertation as a means of doing meaningful comparison about levels of participation in sport, I think it's probably reasonable. And and as a means of giving you some sort of measure of change year on year, I think it's probably reasonable. But it's far from perfect. What would be better? I don't have any easy answer to that because it it probably costs quite a lot of money to collect this data. So it's, it's about... How much you, how much it matters to you to collect it when you know what you're doing it for. One of the projects we're we're looking at doing at the moment is a basketball court renovation, and we've been discussing with um, Pete Griffiths at Basketball England, who's their facilities guy. And uh, one of the things they've been doing, and they've piloted in a couple of places, is when you have a basketball only outdoor area, and it has to be basketball only for this to work. Yeah. Um, you have a tracking system put on the gate, so it's fenced, it's fenced off. And you have a tracking system, then you can actually count the number of people that are going in and out. And the only yeah. reason anyone's go- well, the only reason anyone should be going in and out is to play basketball. Yeah. And that'll give them a better gauge of figures. And if you've got you know a number of those courts in all the major cities and kind of in a few different rural areas, that would probably end up giving you a much well a, another sort of data data point that you can then use to make your case. Um, because ultimately, you know, I kind of feel like if if well. I don't know. I've got mixed feelings about it. There's part of me that's like, if if you really got all of the data and you put it out there objectively, it's very hard for anyone to argue with. But yeah. there's already enough data where you look at it and you're like, well, why is basketball still not getting the amount of funding that it should comparatively to sports with you know similar size participa- participation numbers and everything else? Yes. Um, you know, do you think that is just a case of because the people in power and the people in leadership don't have a clue about basketball, they don't really care about it, we don't have people really fighting fighting our side, um, or do you think it's something else? I think. I think people in in leadership positions not knowing about enough about basketball undoubtedly is a factor. I, I, I can't I can't provide strong evidence of that. You know, it's a gut feel. I mean, th- there's a sort of sense of well, it's kind of logical because the chances are they w- weren't brought up with it because it's such a small sport. So there's a sort of logic to it. Um, and then the evidence, well, the data sort of seems to support that because. There isn't. There's no logical reason why they would be inherently against basketball. So a lack of just awareness of it and a lack yeah. of greater familiarity with other sports is a factor. Now, then the other factor is basketball not having enough clout, influence, and leverage over a long period of time. That that is, for me, um, the governance of basketball has let the sport down for the last you know on and off over the last since about 1990 in my opinion for the for the last 20 to 30 years it it's it's messed things up but but it's also interesting and I and I referenced this this um comparison with netball I was fascinated looking at a, a, a general comparison of the two they are sports with similar levels of participation but the English netball federation has 
between three and four times as much annual income as Basketball England. Um, it has more than twice as much public funding. Um, it has almost ten times as much registration income from its members as basketball has. Why would our sport only be able to attract a tenth of the amount of money from its participants compared to netball? And one of the consequences of all of this, this is netball has six, seven, eight times as many people working for the Netball Association as Basketball England. So it's got much better infrastructure around the country. It's got you know people doing better lobbying, people doing better organising, because there's just a lot more of them. So I can be, I mean, I am quite critical about the governance of, of basketball over the last 30 years, but part of that is to do with just a lack of resources. Mm. It's interesting to say that. Uh, I asked you before we started recording about um, whether or not you watched the interview with, with Ed, Ed Warner because we, we spoke about this whole you know political issue between the BBF and the Home Nations this summer. Um, and one of the contentious issues was was this membership fee that the BBF wanted to levy to the home nations, which they were saying the only way they would be able to uh, afford it would basically be able to, to would basically be to increase the membership price uh, to their members, which they didn't want to pass on to their membership. Um, but actually, when you look at it, basketball in comparison to other sports is one of the cheapest uh, cheapest to join as a member. Yeah. Um, there was a whole thing where you know Claire Waterwood had come out and said that. You know the members can't afford the. She can't. You know they can't afford that. And again, want to kick back. We're just saying that's incredibly patronising. Like, of course, you know, it, basketball is factually known to uh, attract um, participants from the lowest uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. But at the same time, you know, these same players are still spending 170 pounds on a pair of sneakers and, and whatever else. So um, it does almost feel like increasing the membership should be one of the easiest ways for basketball and to have more money to be able to do more things. But I think that cannot happen until they actually show that they can deliver on it. Yeah. Because right now, the membership is going to be like, well, this is what I'm paying you right now, and this is what I'm getting for it. Like, show me what you're going to give me for this extra investment. And I think if they could do that, it would become a different conversation. But until they uh, you know, show an ability to be able to actually deliver on things, things that they're talking about, I think at the moment there's just been so much research, so much, oh, we're going to do this survey, we're going to do that. So, so well, actually, it's time to execute and show what you're really doing. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting uh interesting discussion to have um what's your take on it'd be interesting because i think one of the parallels here is is with your club yeah you know and 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 sort of the rise of basketball and, and or the fall of basketball and the two sort of coinciding what's your experience with um sort of making your club self-sustainable uh, membership fees that you might levy costs and everything else and how that works out to make your club be able to work um that, uh, there's there's a number of things wrapped up in there. Let let me start with the club. You know we're lucky. We're we're in Berkshire. We're in a an affluent area. Yeah. You know M4 corridor. The people that play for us generally are in professional roles. Um, we are fortunate in that regard. Uh, I am I have been the club treasurer. You know I have a finance background. I've been their club treasurer for like most of the last forty years. I protect the money very, very carefully. I want to do that job because, you know, I, I look at clubs around us that have come and gone, and most of it is to do, it, it's all to do with attitudes and, and the pre preparedness of volunteers to make them work rather mm -hmm. than how talented the basketball players are. Um, so taking care of the money, making sure you only book the courts you need, that sort of thing is very important. Uh, 
more widely than my own club, you know, I've been part of league committees for a long time, and I've seen a very noticeable shift over over a period of time, which I'd, I'd like to explore. But but you know, what I hear at, at AGMs now is people complain about having to register with Basketball England. They're complaining on principle about registering because they don't see anything good coming from the at a local level from the governing body. And this is local league adult basketball. Um, they don't they don't see it adding any value. They actually almost certainly don't know what the fee is. They don't know that they you know it was twelve pounds last year and it's thirteen pounds this year yeah. for a player. They would probably they would feel exactly the same if it was five pounds or it was twenty five pounds. The principle is we don't get value from them. That the specifics of the numbers, I don't think, really enters into it. Now, my own experience, and, and it, this goes on, I'd, I'd like to just touch on kind of chapter two and yep. governance for a bit, because when I then look at the commercial side of commercial side of basketball, this, we, I looked at the professional basketball in chapter two, and it goes through the 1970s. It's a, it's a very amateur sport with with it's starting to attract finance. Commercially, you know, things are going well. Lots of money comes in. You start to get television interest. Um, it, it's growing rapidly. It's being run by the English Basketball Association. And when you started to get into the 1980s, basketball starts to attract entrepreneurs, people who can see pot real financial potential in it. I mean, classically, uh, the best examples are probably soccer clubs starting to invest in basketball. Manchester United, Portsmouth, Glasgow Rangers, etc. all start to get into basketball. They don't stay in it very long. I, I think what happens in that period is that English basketball see... English basketball is focused on developing basketball and sees commercial finance as a way of achieving that. Entrepreneurs see a real opportunity to make money and basketball is a route to doing that. It, it's flipped. You know, they've got contrary intentions. You get the split then. So in 1987, the National League clubs break away to, to form the BBL, the Carlsberg League as it then was. Um, and that actually came about because the owners felt they were paying a membership levy to Basel England, or English Basketball Association, wherever yes, it was back yes. then, um, and they didn't feel like they were getting what they weren't getting their money's worth. Essentially, like they didn't feel it was worth it, and so they were like, "Well, let's just break off and do our own thing and become independent." Is Absolutely. that correct? That that is yes. That that was a, that was a significant factor. They didn't believe they were getting value for money in the money they were putting into English Basketball Association. Now, the, the association at that time was being run by a guy called Mel Welsh, and uh, who who was the, the really the central figure in running the English Basketball Association from the time he joined in the early 70s to the time he left in about 1990. You know, he guide, he grew that organisation and guided it to a position of great strength. My and then he he left in 1990 and moved on to do other things, uh, you know, and it, still passionately interested in the sport, fantastic amount of knowledge and was a, it was a huge help to me for this. Has fantastic records. Um going back to the first, uh, the start of the Amateur Basketball Association in the 1930s. He's got all these records. It's brilliant. Anyway, so my my view is what happens is in 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 terms of the the culture and the governance of participation of English basketballs. When I started in the 70s, 
the English Basketball Association knew that to grow the sport, you needed to support local organisations, local local leagues, leagues like the Bucks and Oxen League or the Wessex League that I was in and so on. And they needed volunteers to run these leagues and they needed to give them a lot of support. And and they did. And, you know, we had uh, good relationships with the English Basketball Association. They helped us to grow. Uh, they, you know, they provided a, a very valuable service. Basketball was growing. There was great hope. My My view on looking at what happened is 1987, you get the split. Uh, the English Basketball Association doesn't have the, the the professional, call them professional leagues, professional league to worry about anymore. It, it, in order to continue to develop basketball, I, I think it it had adult local leagues. It knows it's got to get youngsters playing in the sport. It wants something impressive at a national level. I believe progressively from the 1990s to today, it focuses on wanting to have its own national structure, which we have now, the NBL, and in particular on youngsters, getting youngsters in the sport, which is absolutely right. That's really necessary. But I believe alongside that, it progressively felt its local adult leagues, like my league, by the the late 1980s, they're self-sufficient. They don't need our support anymore. They're okay. We don't have to worry about them. Well, actually, you might think you don't have to worry about them, but actually they are central to people playing basketball in this country mm-hmm. you need to care about them you might not need to worry about them but you need to care about them and you need to keep them on side and i don't and i think they have patently failed to do that and and my sort of examples of that are i I'll give you two examples one is uh two or three years ago basketball england with absolutely appropriate concern for safeguarding put in much more rigorous um requirements around table officials Mm -hmm. table officials had to do safeguarding courses so that if they saw youngsters being treated inappropriately they could raise it my club so you know you do a safeguarding course it maybe cost you 10 or 15 quid to do an online course my club basically just an adult club we run five teams we expect everybody to take part so we've got something like 25 qualified table officials we expect you to do the table two or three times a season. And you're then expecting all those people to do a safeguarding course. Mm. And I rang Basketball England to talk about this. Uh, and I spoke to uh, Melissa Haig, who looked after safeguarding through that period. And she was a delight to talk to. She was incredibly helpful. She hadn't the faintest idea that at a local league adult level, we might operate like, like that. Because her awareness was all to do with BBL yeah. and junior leagues. Top end, because, yeah. Because, uh, you know, so that, that for me was a real eye-opener. So that's absolutely their focus. And and my other piece of evidence is just chatting to referees or other people in uh, local area associations about the level of scepticism and disenchantment they have with the governing body. So, you know, from my, my own personal experience, I've gone through the 1980s, Great Hope, good belief in this this body being very supportive to 2018 where at local league adult level there's there's great skepticism and and, and disenchantment and, and you know i think an awful lot of that stems from the fact they focused on some things which were and continue to be very very important but they've taken their eye off 
adult, the sustainability of adult basketball, which underpins an awful lot of support to BBL, junior basketball, and so on. I mean, for me, it's a, it's a, it's a really important pillar. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, you know again going going back to the um, Ed Warner interview. We were saying similar sort of thing where whereby the federation's in such a point now where everyone's looking for them to fail and everyone's because is there's such a negative relationship between so much of the membership and the federation where in any other world they might do something make a mistake and get away with it where now it's like people are looking for the mistakes people are looking to bring them down people are looking to sort of voice their opinions because people are just so upset and frustrated with just years of nothing you yeah. know um, and then it does make their job so much harder and I think for them to be able to get people back on side and, and bought in, it's going to take a massive amount of effort. And I think so much of that is actually getting out there, speaking to people, being involved at the grassroots, you know, going to games, um, seeing really what's going on and being being in touch with, um, well, being in touch with their products. You know, I was speaking yeah. to someone that, that has been in touch with them recently uh, who's very, you know, been around the game a long, long time. And he said, you know, the phone calls were embarrassing. It was like I have to educate them on their product. They, there's a lot of non-basketball people involved um, which again when it's all the basketball people that are on the ground are then dealing with the ramifications of whatever decisions they're making uh, yeah it does end up causing a, a lot of problems uh, so yeah it's fascinating what you say about local leagues actually because you know for me growing up in Eastbourne um, there was no, the nearest national league was uh, national league club was um, Worthing Brighton area so yeah. it was a good 45 minutes to an hour drive you know that wasn't going to happen for my dad uh, you know so for me it was yeah I played local league and that was what we did um, and if we didn't have it it's only now looking back on these things you know you realise like you know I was always a bit resentful over the fact that uh, you know I, I didn't ever feel like I had very good coaching you know yeah. and it's like well actually if the coaches that were providing what they provided for me weren't around I would have had nothing you yeah. know so ultimately it's like they are the uh, the lifeblood of the sport in these areas where there isn't national league clubs and you need the um, you know the local stuff to happen uh, for basketball to thrive and to provide opportunities for people to play um, so yeah it is, it, is, uh, it is fascinating so the talking about the progression of the of the national leagues uh, yeah. and then the BBL um, the other thing that sort of struck me talking about the commercial side of things was just the figures that were being thrown around you know back then um, you know there were deals that were you know worth over a million pounds over two three years um, what kind of give us a description of like this sort of the lay of the land with the commercial side of of, of basketball um, from the 70s through to to now kind of what changed and what the sort of the key inflection points because right now commercially like we're really really struggling well I think um, commercially I think Let's say there are a couple. There are a couple of critical issues. The most significant one is television exposure. Uh, you absolutely have to be on television because that's that's where the money comes in. So um, basketball gets onto onto television on Channel Four uh, through the early eighties. Um, you know, I was watching it then. I thought it was fantastic. It's interesting talking to Kevin Routledge at, at Leicester, who was very involved in it, who was much more aware of how limited it was. So Channel 4 show it for four or five years. And after that, the and you then get to a point where the NBA is internationalizing. It, it's starting to see its global potential. So the NBA starts to go to all these other countries and says, we've got the best basketball in the world. You can show our pro our product on television um, so actually basketball 
it, it, it so basketball creates its, it this sort of problem for itself that uh, suddenly you've got the best in the world, which is a much more attractive uh, proposition for television companies than local league. Now you know it's mixed. Obviously, that can help to promote the sport, but basketball goes off. English basketball goes off English television because it gets replaced by the NBA and and perhaps the product wasn't quite as you know channel four were you know not thinking it's it's progressing as much as we we might have liked they were getting audience figures of like a million people a week you know that's a time you only had four tele television channels and people's expectations of the people that number of people that would watch something on television were massively different from today Anyway, then you get Sky Sports comes in, Sky Sports starts to show English basketball, English basketball starts to have a resurrection in the, commercially in the 1990s. You have great hope that it's really going to take off again. And, it, and it, it looks glamorous and it looks very exciting. Uh, and there's huge amounts of money being pumped in. But when you look at the accounts of some of the clubs around, you know, martial arts were putting huge amounts of money into London Towers. Yeah, it was London yeah. Towers, wasn't it? Uh, and you look at the, uh, the, uh, the the amount of money they were losing. It was horrendous. I mean, it was just unsustainable. Um, so, so you've got to somehow change that. You you've got you've got to find a way of attracting money on a consistent basis. You've made a huge investment. But you're not you're not attracting the money on a consistent basis. So you then get to this this critical moment, two thousand and two. Uh, the BBL is approached by. NTL, uh, who are, are offering 10 million over whatever period it was, um, you know, a massive, I mean, a, a real step change. Uh, the amount of money on offer was a real step change for basketball, potentially. So they make the decision, we're going to leave Sky, we're going to go to NTL. And Sky had offered a deal as well, right? Yeah, Sky, and Sky had offered to continue a deal, which was like, I mean, I, I think the, the figures were like around about a quarter of a million a year from Sky and around about two million a year every year for 10 years from NTL. And the Sky deal was like one year, was it? It, was like, it wasn't a long-term deal in the same way, was it? I don't uh, think. No, I, I don't think it was. I okay. don't think it was. Um, I, I don't know the detail of that, but it was... Um, the NT, the, I mean, the, the NTL deal was obviously... It had the potential to take English professional basketball to the next level. Now, of course, NTL collapsed. They sold the deal on to... Um, the the ITV digital franchise, which then also collapsed, and then basketball loses all its money. And of course, it's it's easy to hindsight with hindsight to say that was really poor governance, that was a terrible decision, etc. etc. But at the time, you'd be dumb to turn it down. Absolutely, yeah. you know, I, I I you know from the 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 research I did, I couldn't be critical of them f for doing that. You know, yes, perhaps they should have tried to negotiate with Sky some more. But I mean, it seems logical to me. They were never going to get anything like that from Sky. Um, who knows? But, you know, the facts are the facts. They, uh, it collapsed. It, it completely undermined uh, the BBL. They had to go right back to grassroots. And, and I think since that time, <clears throat> I think they have done, for me, the right things Given the amount of finance they can get, they've done the right things to rebuild. They've absolutely gone back to grassroots. Uh, clubs like Leicester and Newcastle have done a fantastic job of attracting kids into basketball, you know, getting interest. Kids influence parents, parents 
who don't know anything about basketball get you know taken along by kids and progressively get a bit more interested in it so they've rebuilt uh, i think in the right way despite the lack of finance but it would take it, it really needs some significant investment of money to change it um and I so I think the another thing that goes along with this commercial stuff over over that period of twenty or thirty years, it's a bit like the public stuff, which went from trust to measurement. Is exactly the same with the, the the commercial stuff? And you know, you've had people on these podcasts uh, that I've listened to are very interesting talking about there is so much for more focus now on the number of eyes on the sport. You know, not just are you on television, but what's the measurement showing how many people are yeah. actually watching you on television or on the internet or on channels that are being streamed. Um, so the data is so important. And I always yeah. say, that I think that, uh, yeah, it was interesting. One of the things you, your dissertation said was that there was a formation at one point of Basketball Marketing Limited, which was essentially bringing together, um, you know, all of the different stakeholders from the sport to sell basketball as a whole. And it's a similar thing. There was the British Basketball Union was set up a few years ago, which I don't think ever ended up amounting to anything. It sort of just became in name. But it's a similar sort of thing of like, we need everyone to get together to sell the sport as a collective because that's where the value is. Um, but again, if you're a sponsor, it's like right now we have no data. Like there isn't anyone that can say, the British basketball market is worth this much because we know that this how mu- this is how much money is being spent on performance basketball with Nike. This is how much is being spent with Jordan. This is much ha- has been spent um, with a BBL, you know, on the gates or merchandise and everything else. We just don't have any of it, um, and that's the stuff where I feel like if if someone was able to come in and really get all of that together, it would go so far in helping the sport grow commercially. Um, because right now it is just yeah, it's so hard to be able to say, oh yeah, you know, this is this is exactly what. This is what basketball is in this country. These are the numbers. This is the data. We've got the figures. We've got the facts. Yeah. Um, and they can't be questioned. Um, and and, and I, I'd, I'd like to refer to one of the interviews that you did with Namo Shiri, yeah. which for me was one of, it was a real, real powerful piece of information in my research. Two things struck me about it at that interview. One was a real understanding of how to get people into the sport. Massive growth. You know, doing all the right things to really attract people to basketball in the right way. But the other thing that struck me about it was his ability to attract commercial finance. He gets Nike to put money into it, and they're going to put money into it because they see potential. So, you know, if you do things in the right way, potentially money is out there. That was very powerful. But but, uh, the other thing I wanted to say about that, that stuff about the commercial development of basketball is... Because uh, you'd ask, you know, about those sort of inflection points and yeah. so on. The thing that's important to look at going al- al- along al- around that is the commercialization and globalization of sport generally is also happening through that period. So your other major sports that are competitive to basketball in this country, again, it's you know, it's soccer, rugby, cricket. They're becoming much more commercially oriented. So you take a, a, a sport like cricket. You get 2020. It makes it much more attractive to sponsors and television. Uh, rugby professionalizes in 1992. It launches the Heineken Cup. It starts to have proper competitive leagues. And you know, and I, I, Kevin Routledge talks about the Leicester Riders in competition with the Leicester Tigers and Leicester City. Sport in Leicester. The nature of competition of sport in Leicester changes significantly. The Tigers has always been a very traditional well-set rugby club suddenly with 
with the professionalisation of rugby, it becomes a much bigger competitor for the basketball club. So that the other sports become much more competitive with basketball. And a great example, when Sky loses loses the BBL, the BBL then loses you know, its sponsor, it wants to go back to Sky. Well, Rugby League has reinvented itself as a sport attractive for um, television, it's taken the slot on Sky. Yeah. You know, you, sport, sport has become massively more competitive commercially uh, in the period when basketball has been going through its own growth. And, and unfortunately, as a professional sport in this country, it's such a small player. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, on that commercial point, one of the things that Ed Warner said, I said to him, oh, like, you know, clearly you're, you're really connected. Um, did you have any, you know, did you have any um, sort of conversations with potential commercial partners about, about basketball? And he said the one thing that uh, the, the two people that he did speak to were, would have been interested in was three on three. Um, not actually, they, you know, they feel like basketball in this country has it's been around for so long and it hasn't been able to succeed or flourish like maybe they'd expect. And as a result, they don't know if they can do any sort of innovation there to show that it can work. Yeah. Well, three-on-three is this new, exciting thing. It's obviously going to be in the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. Um, and so it's like this is where you know we want to try some stuff and see whether or not there's things we can do, which does make you think, oh, well, federations need to take a bigger lead on on you know developing a nationwide three-on-three uh, strategy um, because even if, if that money does come in and it can help, you know, you can put it into other, other parts of the sport. Uh, to help to help the sport grow. Um, the other thing I wanted to say on the commercialization side, um, which I found quite interesting that, that you wrote about, was in the early days, in the after the formation of the national national basketball league in seventy uh, two, um, when the commercial sponsors first started coming, it was actually because they could get from basketball they couldn't get from other sports. So uh, in other sports they wouldn't necessarily give up naming rights. They wouldn't necessarily allow uh, sponsorship on shirts. Um, I think. There was something about tobacco advertising yeah. uh, was being banned on television, so yeah. that wasn't another sport thing. But it was just there's sort of these other factors that ended up playing a role that helped basketball thrive. And I almost feel like basketball still is such a f- unregulated space. Yeah, uh, surely that would still be the case now. Um, well, it's interesting. So I mean, the specifics were the 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 tobacco one. So tobacco advertising was banned from. British television, right. so tobacco advertisers were looking for other routes. Um, they saw basketball as an, as an up-and-coming sport. So, so you get this Liverpool basketball club becoming the Bruno Roughcutters because they've got a tobacco sponsor. Yeah. But, but basketball was innovative in that time in allowing things like shirt sponsorship, which soccer, as the major competitor, was very conservative in its approach. And, and of course, soccer has changed completely and that's the one everybody wants to invest in. Um, and, and so basketball had a quite an innovative lead, and I don't think it has that anymore because, because everybody else has kind of become much more commercially oriented. So the uh, I'm aware of time. This time always flies so quickly on, on this stuff. Um, you know, the, the final chapter, the organisation and governance stuff, uh, you know, we have kind of touched on, touched upon it a bit, um, but it does seem to have been... Uh, a level of systemic failure from from the governing body uh, to really help the sport grow and thrive. You know, looking at it from your research that you did, the interviews that you did, and the people that you spoke to, um, what do you think have been the problems? Are there any common themes from within the administration that have allowed it um, to not experience the success that maybe uh, many would expect? I think I think the split 
the BBL going off separately for, from the EBBA uh, was a fundamental, has always been a fundamental issue. Um, in order to be success, in my view, in order to be really successful as a sport, uh, you've got to have a as a spectator sport, participation too, but certainly as a spectator sport, you've got to have a successful international team. And I think that split didn't help that. Um, the BBL obviously has the elite players and it's wanting to focus on its own product. The English Basketball Association has the responsibility for the national team, but it doesn't have the, the, the connection to the elite players anymore. So, uh, so I, don't, I don't think that helped. Um, I, I think fundamentally it has always been a, a very small organisation with very little money and very few resources. So it just hasn't had the power or expertise. And I think as a, as a non-traditional sport, it hasn't had the connections and influence. Um, so, you know, it, it needed to have some, it needed to have the, the good fortune to attract some outstandingly capable leaders that were passionate about basketball over a long period of time. In my view, I think Mel Welsh's time was, it made very significant strides. Um, I think since then it hasn't it hasn't found enough other people like that that are, that have had the power and influence to take it forward. However, in terms of governance, I believe that the establishment of an all party, the all party parliamentary group on basketball, so that you have people in parliament who are influential, who can speak for basketball, um, will will give some leverage to to help uh they, they've certainly done a great job i think in making it m much more publicly aware uh i think they've been they've been very good at exposing the uh unfairness and the inconsistency in funding for basketball compared to funding for other sports and an, a, and a powerful part of that is exposing the the research on return on investment so a variety of different people who've looked at what's your return if you invest a you know a pound in in getting somebody to play basketball what are the savings to society because they are healthier they're more focused they're not likely to do their schoolwork and they're not out causing other mayhem in in inner city communities and that research shows that you get a return on investment of anywhere between 400 and 900 percent who knows what it is but it's massive and you know, so so I I think those people are are exposing the fact that there is great money to be made in public funding into basketball. Now basketball's got to get its organisation, its leverage right to to take advantage of that. And clearly, compared to a number of other sports, its structure between the home countries um, has has been problematic. You take a sport like hockey, um, very powerful in England. It plays um, it, it, as Great Britain in the Olympics, but it's a, it allows the English Federation to essentially run that because it's, it's a powerful federation. Um, basketball plays as Great Britain in the Olympics, but it doesn't. It, you know, it has a sort of separate organisation rather than one dominant home country. 
that isn't working. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I have, I, I'm, I have some sort of gut views like any viewer on on what might be better. I, I don't, I'm not close enough to have a really informed view, but I'm, I know enough to know that what we've got at the moment really is not working and is a bit, it seems to be a bit of a shambles. Would you potentially, because uh, one of the one of the options which doesn't seem that people really are considering is just dissolving GB and and going back to um, you know, senior national teams that are uh, for the home countries only, and then I think for the Olympics you have to represent as Great Britain because Great Britain is the uh, IOC member. Yeah. Um, and so and then just coming together, you know, once every well for the qualification, I guess for the qualif- qualifiers because the new windows and stuff, it's all a bit more complicated now. Um, but yeah, would you potentially look at that as an option of going back as and competing as separate, well, as England, Scotland, and Wales rather than Great Britain? Um, Personally, I wouldn't. My my view would be absolutely the opposite to that. Right, I, go all my, in. My view would be completely focus on GB. Okay. You know, but, but one of the things that that I found that's interesting in basketball is at an international level, it is about the most competitive sport you have. The FIBA has two hundred and thirteen affiliated nations. FIFA only has two hundred and eleven. You compare to sports like. Netball, they've got 48 <laughs> affiliated nations. You know, the, uh, rugby union, massive sport apparently to us. It's not played by that many countries, nor is cricket. So basketball is a hugely competitive international sport. If we want to compete at an international level, and if it's going to be really successful in Britain, I think you have to compete successfully at an international level. Focus it all on GB. Sort out your issues between England, Scotland and Wales. Um, and, and, and focus on one unit. Now, the way that the political world is going in this country, there might not be an England, Scotland and Wales as a GB or a UK sometime in the future, and it might just be England um, or England and Wales. But, but focus at the highest national level in this country you can, in my view, and try and get those home country governing bodies to combine much more effectively. Yeah, I mean, I, I said this multiple times to, to Ed Warner about... You know why not? Obviously, now the CEO doesn't exist anymore. Um, but but remove the CEO of GB. You make the CEOs of Basketball England, Basketball Scotland, Basketball Wales kind of co-directors, uh, and bring all the organisation sort of the core roles, the performance director that then oversees each um, home nation to bring it under much more of a single umbrella, as opposed to well, at the moment it's still very much a us versus them sort of three separate things. Um, I wanted to ask on the on the on the funding side of things the the public funding side of things especially when you look at sort of uk sport and the funding of the of british performance basketball and the british basketball federation do you think there's been a complete lack of recognition of the fact that basketball is one of the most competitive sports in the world um and so therefore it is a lot harder to win a medal it's not like well basketball first of all you've only got 12 teams in the olympics right yeah uh, and then you've got 213 members of fiba so you've yeah. got 213 13 teams ultimately trying to win a medal unlike you know cycling or equestrianism or whatever it might be where you've got i don't even know how many sort of world countries actually compete in that uh, but not only that there's then multiple medals for up to, up um up for grabs so of course you can you're gonna it's, you're gonna have much greater chance of winning a medal do you think there was a complete lack of recognition of that um from the government oh absolutely absolutely um we we got very focused on um winning medals at international events is what really matters, yeah. and and there is there is a certain political kudos on that. You know, as a spectator, I thought it was wonderful that we started to go. 
we started to move up the medal table from Olympics to Olympics to Olympics. I actually now feel it's it's too many. You know, I I liked it when we were winning twenty or thirty medals. And I was like, well, it's a mass now. It's difficult to, yeah. to to keep a focus on them all. But but you know, our focus has been so UK sport supports elite sport. It has a, a vast amount of the money that goes into sport. Uh, we are completely focused on winning internationally. My my view is as a country that there's a, there is a ridiculous imbalance. And we should put an awful lot more of our money into sport, into getting people to participate, playing the sports they love, not just the ones they like to watch on the television. So I, I think there should be a, a, a very significant switch of the money into less into elite sport and more into participation. Uh, and our consideration of what are the key measures of putting money into elite sports should be different. Um, so it should be more on, on the sports that, that people actually play. And it should be more on su- different measures of success rather than actually just winning. Look at the enthusiasm that was generated in this country this summer because the England football team better than did better than they did in the past. They didn't win. We got to the semi-finals, but there was real excitement just because we did better. If you know, if basketball got on and got better, and and just got shown, people would get more interested in it. It doesn't have to win the Olympics or win the you know the world, whatever. Yeah. Um, it just has to do better. And of course, it's it's men and women too. It'd be great. For, you know, it's great for women's sport. It, and it does it does feel like that shift is happening with yeah. uh, you know UK sport have obviously done this massive pu- public consultation um the the last pot of money that GB actually got was was part in part funded via UK sport uh which is the first time there's been any type of philosophical philosophical shift for that from them um cuz you know GB are not winning a medal really likely anytime soon yeah um and then, of course, I think last week it was announced that uh, Liz Nichols is is leaving the CEO, yeah. who's been overseeing this whole you know medals at all costs, um, sort of no compromise approach. So uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. But then saying that, as much as we all want basketball to receive more money, do you think that that would be the answer to all the problems? Uh, you know, I always say well, GB's had over fifteen million, you know, since two thousand six now. Uh, is there a lot to show for that in terms of legacy and and um, an impact? I'm not so sure. Uh, you know, if 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 Sport England was suddenly to give Basketball England, you know, what 10, 10 15 million tomorrow over the course of the next twelve months, um, do you think that that would actually change the game long term? Not if you only did it for one year. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, unfortunately. You absolutely have to stick with it. You look at the money that UK Sport put into the GB basketball team in in preparation for the 2012 Olympics. That was focused money, absolutely focused on the best GB team we could we could produce. And over a short period of time, they made remarkable progress. You know, they were that close, men and women, to reaching the quarterfinals. Um, it was fantastic. And then all the money went away. You know, there just there absolutely had to be a preparedness to stick with it. Now, you talk about £12 million, that was the sort of amount of money we, that was put into that. But for basketball, that's huge. For investment in sport, it isn't. So, you know, basketball is a, is a small sport in this country with not much money. So in the vast pot of money that goes into sport, actually sticking with basketball for the sort of money it needs for longer, I don't believe is actually that big an ask. 
given the sort of money that goes into a lot of other things. But you, you would need to stick with it uh, at, at an international level, uh, for sure, for a, for a longer period of time. Um, so that the, the sort of... I think the evidence shows, and, and stuff that I've read that you've shown, shows we produce very talented young people playing basketball. More and more of them are going off to America because they're all leaving this country because there isn't you know, a professional future for them. And then we can't get them back because we can't afford to insure them or, or get them to play for the national team. But the talent's out there. If you, could, if you could afford the money to consistently develop that talent and make it feel, I want to represent my nation like Royal Deng did, and do that on a sustained basis, you know, okay, basketball is a very competitive sport and I've said that it isn't essential to win. But I believe, actually, we could be really, really good at it. You know, we could be right up there in the top four, top eight in the world, potentially, if you stuck at it for at least a decade. Um, and as a, as, a, as a participation level, um, yes, I think if, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the, the right amount of money was put in and supported by really good quality, sustained leadership over a period of time... Uh, uh, my view is basketball has the potential to be very clearly the number two participation team sport in this country. And I say that based on, on two things. One, the simplicity and pleasure of playing the game that you know I had as a kid and kids still have. Two, how popular it is around the rest of the world. That shows that, that kids love playing basketball. Um, and, and therefore, I think, and then, you, and then you, you put alongside it the, the sort of examples of Leicester and Sheffield investing in their local communities, Namo Shiri with Reach and Teach and that sort of thing. I, I think the level of interest amongst people is there if you provided the support and the infrastructure over a period of time to allow, to allow it to grow. But, but you've, got to, you've got to stick with it. And it's got to have governing bodies that... Um, have got really good quality people that are well organised for, for a period of time, um, but I think if you put if you had enough money into it and you had the right um, governance from Sport England holding it to account in the right way, uh, that 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 is achievable. Did you, did you get any insight at all on um, why Barcelona England? Uh, hasn't been able to attract a lot of commercial income you know I know one of the points you made I think was 2017 of an income of 3.1 million or whatever it was 75% of it was sporting the money yeah um, you know yeah. where do you think the governing body has failed like why why are they unable to uh, raise commercial pa- sponsors partnership there's a ladybird on your mic that just <laughs> caught my eye yeah me too <laughs> um, yeah well, why do you think that is um, I don't know Un- unfortunately uh, when I when I started the dissertation, I expected that Basketball England would be a major source of information for me, uh, and unfortunately, I mean, you know, the the BBL, Kevin Routledge and, and Andy Webb were incredibly helpful. Mel Welsh, the former head of the of the English Basketball Association, was incredibly helpful. English Basketball or Basketball England, I really struggled with. You know, really? I I I. I rang them, I had a day up there, you know, they've had this move from Sheffield to Manchester, so they couldn't find any of their records. So, you know, all the archive material I was hoping to find, they didn't have. Um, data I was looking for, you know, they said they would hope to get to me and, and never did. Um, so, unfortunately, my own my own experience of, of getting support from them through the period of the dissertation was 
was really just disappointing. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't get to talk much to senior people at Basketball England, which I would really like to have done. Um, Do you know, know what, what's disappointing about that for me is that the research, like, we don't have enough research around British basketball. And it's why yeah. I always say, like, anyone that contacts me about dissertations or whatever, I'll always be willing to help, provided I can get a copy afterwards so that yeah. I can have a look at it. Yeah. Um, because the more research, just like, you know, this piece that you've done, is going to be so incredibly valuable for the next person that wants to come along and build upon it. Yeah. And that's how any, you know, research or science is done over time. It's like you build on the evidence that you've had before you. And I think one of the things that struck me um, in your literature review, well, you know, I was like, this should be interesting because I don't really know much literature that exists. And sure enough, you're like, it's very hard to find anything that's actually been written around basketball so you have to go and do the do the interviews yourself and where now you've done the work and you've got this 94 page document it's going to be so valuable to so many people um that want to build a build upon it to help the game and help the game grow and sort of pull the insights from the past to make sure we're not repeating the same mistakes mistakes and that's where you know basketball England should be at the forefront of helping you do that because again it's helping them yeah but for that to hear that they're not responsive and not very helpful. Is like you said, it's incredibly disappointing. Incredibly disappointing. Um, it was, and I and I, I would love, I would love that to change because I, you know I care a lot about this sport. I'd like to help it in the future. I would be very happy to, you know, to be to be more involved. But but my own experiences with them and and the people I interacted with, um, was was a shame. I mm. mean, it, it was a real pity. It was it was one of the very few disappointments in my year. And as I say, you know, I compare it to um, the BBL were, were terrific. They were very open, they were very helpful. They told me all sorts of stuff, um, which was really interesting, including confidential stuff that I couldn't use. But, but, you know, they were prepared to share it because they knew it was really important context to help me understand what I was writing. Um, and, you know, and other people, Mel Welsh, I've mentioned, Roger Morland, who used to run uh, run the BBF, you know, gave me lots of, of his time too. So there were, you know, a lot of people out there that, yeah. were, that were very helpful. We went off on a slight tangent there. So yeah. the original question was, uh, <laughs> yeah, why do you think the um, governing body has been unable to raise a lot of commercial income? Do you, do and you I guess I was, I was giving that context <laughs> to be able to say, my insight is really limited because I never, you know, I right. never got inside them. All I could read was their, their annual reports. Um, so, so I don't know, but but I am struck. You know, Namo Shiri gets uh, this money from Nike. They have trust in him to deliver something. Basketball England doesn't get it. Sport England then moves to saying, actually, we're the, some of the money we're going to put into basketball, we're not going to give to Sport England anymore. We're going to give to local so, initiatives. Yeah. That seems to speak volumes. I don't know why Basketball England has not been able to attract commercial finance, but it's a problem for sure because they need to. When you look, I don't know how much comparison you did to other sports, but um, when you look at sort of the the, the the other main sports in England, you look at their um, if you did look at at all at their income uh, of the federations, yeah. Uh, what was the split between um, public and private money? Um, I, I looked a little bit. Um, so I looked at, let's say, for example, I, I looked at a sport like tennis, mm -hmm. and you know what I find found about tennis. It has Wimbledon. It has massive uh, commercial income coming in through one event, which can then trickle down to the grassroots. Um, rugby has the Six Nations Championship. You know, it, it, it's international. So they have these marquee events. That yeah, absolutely. Right. And that, that, that makes a huge difference. But do you think that basketball could do that? That's the question. Because then you think, you know, EuroLeague Final Four came in in 2012 
couldn't sell tickets, uh, really struggled to raise any awareness and get any mainstream press. Originally, they had agreed a two-year deal to, to have it in London, um, and they left after a year. Uh, you know, of course, the NBA comes in and sells out every single year, but I think the NBA is a unique um, a thing. It'd be interesting to know whether or not... I, I'm pretty sure there was a thing where the NBA... Um, didn't really work with the federation <laughs> in terms of when they come in, they just come and do it external. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, in what world does that happen? Whereas like, I wonder whether there's a way of partnering with the NBA to, you know, get a portion of that money. Because uh, you could see you know, 20,000 people paying whatever they pay for those tickets, which yeah. is stupid. I mean, it could make a big difference to the game here. Um, so simple answer is, no, I don't think basketball can, professional basketball in England can have an event like that. I, I think the BBL is doing, for me, for the most part, a really good job. But ultimately, I don't have confidence that professional basketball in England can grow to compete with Spain, Italy, Germany, France, because I think the competition from other really well-established sports in this country is too powerful. Having said that, which is a bit, you know, that was a a conclusion I was sad to come to, I, I am conscious of the fact that the NBA has its European headquarters in London, continues to invest in in England and they must do that because they think there is a significant market here. Now, one of the things I never got to do as part of my research was talk to the NBA here and I would be curious to do so. But it's so I don't understand what they they see as their end game in England, but the fact that they are here consistently here to me means they think there there's got to be potential here. Mm. Whether it's just potential for people to watch the NBA or whether it's potential for professional basketball to grow to be a much higher level in this country, I don't know. Yeah, it seems that England is so attractive to um, outside basketball organisations. You know, the EuroLeague have made no qualms about the fact that they want a a EuroLeague franchise in London. They've said that repeatedly, on record, publicly. Yeah. Um, You know, Basketball Champions League, obviously Leicester went into it this year, but they've been very clear about the fact they want England teams. And again, London is just, I think it's because London is such a, well, global financial district. Yeah. Um, You know, it's like, why why can't it work? Have you seen a lot about what London City Royals are doing down at Crystal Palace, the new BBL franchise this year? No, I haven't. Because that's Namo. Namo's involved with that. Um, And, you know, they've, uh, John Sawyer, who's um, a big-time businessman, and they've got sort of uh, good links in the city and good links with, with other businesses. It'll be fascinating to see how that plays out. Uh, and they've been very clear that their aspiration is to get into Europe um, within the next sort of few years. Um, that is the goal. Um, and yeah, I think that all it takes is one, and it could change everything. You know? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, there needs to be. I talked earlier about the importance of the national team being successful, but I also think. If you could get one or two club sides to be really competitive at a European level, that could be the other way to leverage things. Because that would, that would create media and commercial interest. Or media, media interest as a route to commercial interest. The media interest would really help. So now that you've uh, completed this beast of a piece of work... <laughs> um, What's next on the agenda? Do you have any uh, future plans to potentially do more research in the space or do you think you're done for a while and just want to focus on the club? Well, actually, I'm focusing on two clubs because apart from my own club, I've become involved uh, in a community club in Bratton. There's a, there's a club called the, uh, the Bratton Cobras. Uh, one of the sad things about my club is we've never really had, had any juniors. We've always basically been an adult club and we started as 16, 17-year-olds. Then we became old and adults, and we've always been an adult club. <laughs> yeah. So th- th- there's a different. Cl- there's another club in Bracknell, the Bracknell Cobras, which runs uh, 
kids programs from under 12 under 10 all the way up to under 18 150 kids in Bracknell I've become involved with them uh, doing their books because I am I'm an accountant by background and okay. Uh, that takes a remarkable amount of time to collect the money and work out what people want. But you know that that it, it, it's a, we run basket. We we are very lucky to have somebody that uh, that underwrites our losses so that we can run basketball for kids at five pound an hour for training. Um, and that's you know that's what sports all about to me. The, the philosophy of this club is getting as many people as possible kids to play basketball, and you know and and to some extent as they as they move out of this club that only goes to under 18s they can move into the adult club that I'm also part of so my focus is it's back to supporting a local community club uh, it's coaching the ladies teams that I coach and, and running my club and frankly I'm, the the research was really interesting um, but blooming hard work so I'm, I'm quite happy to have a break for a while so uh, that would have been a perfect place to wrap up but I, I did want to quickly ask um this this past year working on this has it been a full time thing? Like, how much time has it taken you? Uh, what sort of hours have you been putting in to um, put together this this document? Yeah, it's an interesting question. There were there were nine of us that started on this journey of doing the masters together, and we had a, a six of us managed to get together a few weeks ago. Two of us completed it in the year, and, and essentially that it was because of the time commitment. You know, I was lucky enough that I am retired and I had the time put into it. But during this fantastic summer we had, Iret and I was working around about five hours a day, five days a week. Okay. Uh, I missed the summer completely because I was <laughs> you know, really involved. I mean, it was, it was a lot of hard work. Now, a part of that was because I was really interested in it yeah. uh, and wanted to do it. Part of it was because as I got into it, I realized I knew so little at the beginning. Yeah. You know, there was so much to learn um but yeah it, it was it was of that sort of order i was i was putting in 20 25 hours a week for four or five months through the spring and the summer to get it done do you th- is there any plans to um to publish it or try and get it out there more publicly um well the, the university of worcester have put it on because they run the basketball heritage archive they've put it on their website ah, awesome um I was lucky enough to discover, you know, as part of my journey, I discovered Hoops Fix and, you know, I got in touch with you and you were really helpful. So, you know, it, submitting it to you and you putting it out there and, and you doing this is is great as far as I'm concerned. Because, frankly, I became much more interested. It became more important to me that it was an, it was something that would be readable for people in basketball um, than just submission for a dissertation and, and everybody forgets about it. I, you know, I hope it takes research in basketball forward in having done a year's worth of work I'm now conscious of how much more there is potentially to be done so you know it's great you've read it I mean not many people have yeah there's a good few people that have got it um two or three people I think have actually read it if anybody else wants <laughs> to look at it my recommendation is if you don't have the time for the 94 pages read the introduction read the conclusion that tells you most of it um but yeah you know I, you know, I hope it I hope it I hope it prompts conversation. Perfect. I definitely think that it will do. And um, yeah, I'll do anything I can to help it sort of spread far and wide. Love to put it publicly um, for people to read. Um, Jeff, thank you so much for making the trek east uh, today. is much appreciated. And uh, yeah, thanks again for, for writing it. It's um, a really great piece of work, piece of work that I think will uh, go a long way in helping the growth of, of basketball moving forward. Well, thank you, Sam. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. 
You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.